0: Love Talk Radio He wants
1: to play, she wants to play. I can't play. I cannot play right now. I can't play. Archangels, ghosts,
0: and Bigfoot. Oh my. It's just another night for supernatural girls. Real stories. Real answers to life's
1: biggest supernatural mysteries.
3: to another exciting episode of Supernatural Girls Radio. I'm your host,
4: Patricia Baker.
3: I'm here with my co-host, Patricia Kirkman. PK, how you doing tonight?
4: Absolutely fabulous. Doing drip down for 106 degrees here in Tucson.
3: Oh, my God. And we're still kind of freezing in New England, but that's to be expected, oh, I, I guess. <laughs> wow, do we have a great show tonight. This is so exciting. We are talking about The Conjuring House and the live stream event that is coming up on May 9th. Everybody, you can't miss it. It is going to be so exciting. And we are here with a long list of our celebrities to talk about the house, including the original house member, one of them, Andrea Perrin, is here with us. And the producer for the live stream, Renee Barnett is with us. She also has a sister show to ours called Night Vision. We're hoping to hear her back on the radio soon. And we've got Corby Mitlide, tarot reader extraordinaire. She's going to be looking at the cards to see what the cards have to say about The Conjuring House. Now, this is the real house. The movie was based on this house. And Andrea is the original person living in the house with her family, all seven of them. There is a new family living there now. We're going to get to all of that. But Andrea is the one who knows the real story about what went on inside that house. You have come to the right place tonight if you want to hear the real story and be ready to be spooked. It is an amazing story with all kinds of events that took place and are still going on today. So first and foremost... I'm going to bring Renee onto the show so she can tell you about this live stream event, truly groundbreaking. Renee, welcome to the show. There you go. Hi, Renee. Welcome to the show. Thank you
5: so much. It's so good to be here. looks like we got a whole house full of Supernatural girls tonight.
3: <laughs> we do. We do. Thanks so much for coming on. So tell us about this live stream event. This is something that has never been done before. That's true. And that's, uh,
5: you know, it's a scary house, but scarier than that to me is what we're uh, attempting to pull off here. But uh, all the tests look good. We're seeing all the good uh, video live streaming from the house. And uh, I I was just uh, testing out the system Uh, What we're going to have, obviously, is uh, cameras that people can monitor, cameras wired throughout that house. So we'll be having guests during the day, some very wonderful people. We're going to have, well, Patricia Baker is going to be with us. And, of course, we couldn't do it without Andrea Perrin. Uh, We ain't crazy. And, uh, oh, let me see off the top of my head. we got Jimmy Church. He's going to be uh, broadcasting his show live Uh, During our event, so we'll be simulcasting with Jimmy Church, uh, Colin Brown of the Paranormal Files, we've got Heidi Hollis, the Outlander, uh, Bridget Marquardt, Ghost Magnet, uh, Jay and the Yates, I think their group is called the Cops Crew, we got Dave Schrader, we got a wonderful uh, ghost hunting couple that's really up and coming in the paranormal world, uh, Tony and Cherie Rathman. They are EVP experts and another ghost hunting family, so they're going to be visiting uh, while they are quarantined at their place to with the Heinzens who are quarantined there and discuss what it's like uh, being a ghost hunting family. And we got Susan Slaughter with Ghost Hunters International and many, many, many more. I just can't possibly name them all off the top of my head right here, but I guarantee you, uh, we've got some wonderful wonderful people uh, participating, and it should be a lot of fun. We're going to have some contests, and so you can win some stuff. Uh, it's You're going to be able to interact with all the cameras and monitor all night long uh, from anywhere that you are in the world, the cameras, and we want everybody to watch uh, and investigate those rooms. If you see something, be sure and note the room that you are in and the time, and then Later, we'll roll the cameras back, and we'll find it, and we'll investigate it. So it truly is an interactive situation that we got going on, and I'm really uh, excited. But as I was getting ready to say, we were testing the system, I think it was night before last, and Kathleen Burns, who is a wonderful executive producer, uh, I have to say that because I'm working for her this time around. So, you know, <laughs> no, Hi, she is absolutely wonderful. And Andrea knows. And uh, so I'm working with her, and she was asking me, can you get on the system and see what? tell me what you see? And there were like 12 cameras at that time that were hooked up. I think there may be a couple more uh, going up later. But uh, at that time there were 12 cameras on screen. And she says, tell me what you see. I said, I see I see 12 screens. She said, okay, what do you see on the top screen? And I was naming off everything, you know, so she could see where everything was situated and positioned. And then I go, Kathleen, Kathleen. She goes, what? And I said,
3: I I saw something. I saw something. And she started (laughs) laughing. And she says,
5: honey, stuff happens in that house all the time. And I said, no, I saw it. You know, it was very strange because it happened to be, you know, on the uh, camera – that was right outside the house, and there was a car parked right there. And I saw this thing fly by that looked all the world like a, a a small comet or a meteorite or something, but it was just along the ground, you know. And then right after that, as though it was sort of following along, was this sort of articulating misty mass, you know, it was kind of a, you know, white see-through thing that was uh, going behind it. And I was just, you know, I couldn't even talk for a few minutes. And she was trying to get some work done. So <laughs> I was, she goes, look, you can look at it later. We've got to get work to do, work done because <laughs> you're going to see stuff all the time there. I said, okay, fine. So anyway, so it is a very very active uh, situation over there, as Andrea will be the one to tell you all about. She is the utter expert on the house. It was her family that was portrayed in the film. And she was a teenage girl at the time, and I would imagine that was pretty wild. I think there were a lot of things going on, some that felt pretty positive, some not so much, as we know from uh, what we know about that story and from the movie. And I know I asked Andrea when we first met, I said, you know, did all that stuff really happen? And she said, it was so much more. And I said, oh, my (laughs) Lord. So uh, anyway, we are going to have a great time with Andrea. She's going to be with us throughout, and she's been doing a wonderful, wonderful job uh, promoting the event. And she's so kind to to do that because I know she's as tired as we are. She's working all, all day long just like we are on this project, so we really appreciate her. But well, we it. appreciate Don't you, you
3: and the other producers involved and Andrea and everything you're doing because this is an extremely exciting event for the paranormal community. We are thrilled to be a part of it on Supernatural Girls, and we're happy to spread the word because, again, this has not been done before. You guys have been laying cable and setting up cameras and testing everything and not to mention all the work on promotion. This is truly a breaking event, and... I can't wait to see what happens on those cameras. I hope everybody in the spirit world shows up. This is their big chance.
5: Absolutely. I mean, the scary part is is that this idea was only just hatched about four weeks ago. Oh my and, God. And, you know, it, uh, Kathleen and uh, Jay Blumke, another one of the executives uh, on the show, uh, We're talking, they're good friends, and they often partner on projects. And I've worked with both of them over the years. I don't want to tell you how many. Uh, But (laughs) they were talking, they said, we're bored. You know, there's nothing to do. We can't shoot anything. We can't, you know, no no production is happening in town. And they said, you know, what can we do? Can't we do something, you know, that would entertain people, uh, you know, while they're isolating in their houses? and maybe do something for charity and, uh, you know, just take people's minds uh, off of things. And everybody's watched everything on Netflix now. So they came up with this live streaming from the house. Uh, Jay was already working with the Heinzens on doing something there, and uh, they hatched this idea. And, of course, I was crazy enough when they called me up to go along with them. And so it's uh, really just the four of us, uh, Jay, Kathleen, myself, and and, and Scott Perlman. And uh, we've all been working our little fingers to the bones uh, up at six and a- in bed at midnight, and it's solid work. It is no break. I just sent Kathleen a text a little while ago, and I said, cold waffles aren't that good. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no time Oh, to my eat. goodness. Well, you need some type of reward at the end of all this, that's for sure, for all the hard work that you've put in, and what a great job you've all done. Again, we're so happy to be a part of this, and we can't wait to see what happens. We want to invite everybody in our audience, please spread the word, because the more people that have eyes on this, the more exciting this is going to be. That's right. Because what you might not see, your friend might see. So. Anyway, exactly. That's, that's true. You
5: can compare notes, and you know. Mm-hmm. Plus,
3: there, I think there'll be a way to
5: communicate uh, in the uh, in the room, so we'll all know what's going on. Uh, now, the tickets are the discount tickets will be going up. This is the last day for that, so they're scheduled to go up at uh, midnight Eastern tonight. So, if you're thinking about going, now's the time to pull the trigger because you're going to be paying, it's only $5 more. But, you know, we all like to save money. And so yeah. uh, it's 14 How $14. much are the tickets now, Renee? Fourteen ninety nine for the entire week, 24 hours a day, seven days. Okay. God, that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. And going up to uh nineteen ninety nine. And we are donating to... Oh goodness! What are we donating to? We're donating uh, to the, the World Kitchen. We're donating to the Gary Sinise Foundation. And uh, who is Gary Sinise? If uh, if you know who he is, the actor, and he played yes. uh, you know a He's Vietnam wonderful. veteran. He is wonderful. His charity has been for you know veterans and first responders. He has now added our our uh, nurses and doctors and medical people, and people that work in hospitals, the cleaners, the cooks, whatever. He's now added those people uh, into this to help, you know, fight against this COVID-19 thing that's affecting us all. So that's really good. And then also uh, Global Giving uh, is the other one that we are uh, donating to. So we thought we'd pick three, and hopefully uh, people will like uh, the ones that we picked, we tried very hard to uh, choose really good ones, made sure they were thoroughly vetted, and uh, good places to to donate to to make sure that the money gets to the right place so we're and we're happy to do that and very pleased that we can because everybody feels so helpless, I think you know sitting at home you know watching uh the pandemic on t v twenty four seven and uh it's like what you know We're sitting in our houses. What can we do to help? And there's all these wonderful people that are taking care of us out there. So uh, we can help out a little bit uh, with uh, our event, and we can also help entertain people while they're bored and isolated in their homes. We hopefully will give them a little bit of excitement.
3: I'm sure there's going to be a lot of excitement. And, Renee, again, thank you so much. I know you have to run because you've got to get back to work on this amazing project. But now – uh, where do people actually go to buy the tickets? Is there a website that you can give out on that?
5: Yes. Uh, go to TV. Okay, TV.
3: Okay, That's terrific. It. Okay, hope to see everyone in
5: the house.
3: Yes, we'll all be there. And thank you again, Renee. You can join. Well, I know you're going to be working the rest of the night, so hope you get it all done. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
5: all right, and Patricia, be sure and, and let your people know uh, when, when you're scheduled for. I'm sorry, I don't have that information in front of yeah, me. Yeah, I've got I'm it. Sure uh, I'll your listeners
3: be on from to. 5 to 6 on Monday the 11th. So everybody can join that if they want to hear what I've got to say and what five happens when I join the crowd.
5: 5 to 6 Eastern?
3: Yes, 5 to 6 Eastern. Thank you. On
5: Monday. Okay. I'm going to make sure I note that. Thanks very much, guys. Appreciate you all. Hey, it's our
3: pleasure, Renee. Thank you. Have fun with Andrea. You'll be working, so enjoy the rest of your work night.
5: (laughs) Take care.
3: Okay. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, my goodness. What a project, huh, P.K.?
4: Oh, incredible. My goodness, it's kind of like the Energizer Bunny is at work, for sure.
3: Oh, I know, I know. I don't know where Renee gets all of this energy, but God bless her. She's done a terrific job, along with everybody else, Kathleen and Jay and Scott. They've just done a remarkable job, but right now. We are going to move to the actual story. This is the true story, everybody. Get ready to hear it. Mm-hmm. This is the real deal from somebody who knows, who is there, who experienced it. So let us welcome her to the show, Andrea Perron. Welcome to Supernatural Girls Radio. How are you tonight?
1: Oh, I'm very well. Thank you so much, Patricia. And hello, PK. Uh, it's it's wonderful to be with you ladies and uh, and I deeply appreciate the offer. And I have to tell you, Patricia, when we connected privately the other day, um, I was just so impressed with your curiosity and your intellect and your your um, absolute devotion to this field, uh, so much akin to my own, Um, and so I felt that we were kindred spirits connecting, and it was really a delightful conversation.
3: Oh, thank you so much, and I'll tell you what, Andrea, it was my pleasure speaking with you, and I'm so, again, grateful to our dear friend Renee, who connected all of us, And so we're going to have a wonderful time speaking with you. We've got PK, as you know. We've also got Corby Mitleid. Corby, say hello, because you're on with
6: us, too. Pleasure to meet you, Andrea. Thank you.
1: Hi, Corby. It's lovely to meet you, too, dear.
6: So we are going to
3: start at the beginning, because I'll tell you what. You really took me off guard, Andrea, when you told me how much you loved this house. And I was like, oh my God, that's an amazing thing to say, given Mm -hmm. everything that your family went through. How about you start at the beginning? What happened? How did you end up living in this house?
1: Well, uh, we were living in a lovely little Cape Cod home in Cumberland, Rhode Island, which is a a suburb of Providence. And uh, we went from, we lived there for six years, and Uh, About halfway through the fourth year that we lived there, uh, a series of very unfortunate uh, circumstances and events began to transpire at at our home and in our neighborhood. And the boys that, you know, we were completely surrounded by boys. Uh, There were an awful lot of, uh, of kids that were boys in our neighborhood and that had formerly been our playmates. And then suddenly seemed to um, convert into little budding criminals. Oh, great. It was um, just, um, I mean, to the extent that the incidents that were occurring in the neighborhood were so extreme that my mother uh, insisted that we stay inside at our home, you know, in, in our own yard and in our own home. And not um, not interact with our, our neighbors anymore. It which which was you know rather a shocking turn of events, but it was absolutely necessary. Um, and I, I begin my books, uh, House of Darkness, House of Light, which is a trilogy. It, it wasn't actually meant to be. It was meant to be one book, but the amount of information was so voluminous that. Uh, it ultimately morphed into three books uh, instead of one. But I start the first book introducing my readers to my family as a perfectly normal family. And then they get to meet us and know us in that way and see uh, as these events transpired what forced us to – Seek refuge, as it were. Um, my mother saying to my father, "I don't want to live here anymore. I want to raise my girls in the country. I want a place in the country." And my father, uh, knowing that we had not lived there long, his attitude was, "You know, we need to make the best of it here. We don't even have any equity in this house yet, and and you know, we, we can't afford to move. That's just not going to happen, Carolyn." And so they began butting heads on that. And he went away, excuse me, on a business trip uh, in June of 1970. And my mom took me to a flute lesson. And while she was waiting, she picked up a newspaper outside of Mount St. Charles Academy in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, and uh, never really got to read it because I was unprepared for my flute lesson. And so (laughs) my teacher sent me home Uh, And there was a reason for that, and the book details all of it. Um, You know, some very sad and upsetting things had happened, and I had really, uh, at the tender age of 11, had begun to shut down emotionally um, and change because I was so angry and I was so upset and I was so sad. Um, So uh, we went home, and she made dinner, and then we all went to bed, and, and she started looking through the newspaper that she never had a chance to look at before. And she was sitting at the dining room table with a warmed-over cup of coffee and the newspaper. And the advertisement for that piece of property seemed to leap right out of the paper and into her eyes. And it, sh- it shocked her. It set her back in her chair. And it was about a uh, original colonial farmhouse with a barn and 200 acres of land. And she got up from the table at 9 o'clock at night, was considered at that time and still is uh, impolite to call people after, you know, a certain hour in the evening. But she called the realtor and she made an appointment and went to look at the house the next day and wrote the woman a check uh, for $500 earnest money to hold the property until my father could look at it when he got back from his trip. Um, and virtually emptied our family bank account uh, to hold that piece of property. And, you know, my mother is.
3: She was that convinced that that was the place.
1: Yep, she was. And, uh, you know, of course, my father freaked when he came home. He's like, how do we get the check back? And she said, (laughs) I'll get the check back after you come look at the farm. Um, And if if it's not right and it's not what you want and, you know, I'll convince them that I acted impetuously and, you know, just tear that check up. It's no good, Uh, you know, and we all dad piled all of us into the car and we went up uh, and met Mr. Kenyon, who was the owner at the time. And we uh, all fell in love with the farm. And I had a very strange reaction to it because we had never. Uh, even though Rhode Island is the size of a postage stamp, it's so little. Uh, we had never been to the village of Harrisville uh, as a family uh, in the town of Burrowville. That you know had never been uh, one of our haunts per se. We didn't know that that town existed until Mom had gone to look at the farm. And when I, when we drove into that town, I remember distinctly saying to my mother, "You know, uh, I leaned forward uh, and." asked her and she was sitting in the front seat next to my dad and my baby sister, April was between them. And then the other four of, of us, uh, the girls were in the back seat. And I said, mom, you know, have we ever been here before? And she said, no, uh, no, we, we haven't. And I said, then, you know, why, why do I feel like I know this place? Mm-hmm. I know this place. There was it, it was familiar to me. All the different. Now, now let me um, stop you
3: for one second, Andrea, because before the show went live, Corby and PK and I were all talking about this. And Corby, do you want to speak up and and share what you told sure. us about
6: Andrea? That you'll find this sure. interesting, Andrea. Um, mm-hmm. Andrea, you and I have never spoken before, and um, nope. I'll be perfectly honest. I'm, I'm the odd woman out. I am not someone who does this branch of paranormal. It's not my wheelhouse. But what I am is a past life retrieval expert uh, working with Robert Schwartz in his book series. And one of the reasons why I believe that you felt right, you loved that house, is you were probably its first mistress in the 18th century. I see you with the person who was building it one particular thing that i'm seeing is um he's working with the 18th century woodworking materials something slips he gets a gash uh there's some blood on the ground you're helping wrap it up but you look at the blood and you realize that just seals the deal you were not a witch you you were normal, probably you were a Congregationalist, which is, I think, what they were in the New England 18th
1: Quakers, but They were Quakers. Uh, yep. uh, you're
6: Quakers. Okay, yeah, I know Congregationalists from Massachusetts and John Adams. But mm-hmm. um, it's one of the reasons why I think the House may have protected you somewhat from the really, really awful stuff that may have happened to other members of the family. Um... Mm-hmm. The house was able to blunt things. there you know what whatever is the we'll just call it the big nasty uh, it is not the house itself, but the house knows that you recognized it. the house knows that you literally put the uh, love and blood into building it and I'm getting absolute cold chills while I'm talking about this. and so you will be the one that is affected least by the big nasty because the house knows you and loves you back.
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you should say that. You know, I've not ever, and yes, I will uh, vouch for the fact that we have never met each other. We have never spoken before. Uh, But I will tell you that one of the most profound experiences that ever happened to me in that house happened when I was 17 years old and I had come back. I'd gone off to college about six weeks earlier. I was absolutely miserable. I had the roommate from hell. I would have swapped out any of the spirits for her in a heartbeat. Um, and I could not wait to come home and you know the squeaky wheel gets the grease so i started calling home and whining that oh, i'm miserable this is awful you know this oh my god she's such a bitch i'm sorry i don't mean to swear on your air but you know okay. i did say that to my parents and oh. uh, yep. <laughs> yeah. yep and uh so my father flew me home and and in the in the six weeks or so that i had been away in pittsburgh Uh, I I must have somehow forgotten or disassociated from the difference between natural cold and supernatural cold. And so I uh, got home and went up into my bedroom only to discover that my sister Cindy had stolen my bedroom in in my absence. So apparently (laughs) I was bunking in with her. Uh, And the reason she did was because her bedroom was so active that it was difficult for her to sleep in there. So she figured if mine was vacant, she would just take mine, and it was just as active as hers. So that kind of defeated the purpose, but at least it was extra space. And um, I went upstairs, dumped my stuff, uh, and came back downstairs. And it was October. It was my birthday weekend, which almost always falls on the Columbus Day, three-day weekend, because I'm born October 10th, 1958. And uh, I came down. Mom had a big meal made, uh, uh, spaghetti and and meatballs and sauce and salad. And I'd eaten on the plane back when they served more than pretzels and... So I wasn't really starving, but I was cold to the bone. And I went and stood on the hearthstone of the fireplace. And of course, in October, you know, in New England, very often you've got a fire going if you've got a fireplace because it can get very cold in October. And so I stood, I had, I remember it distinctly as though it just happened. Uh, And I had on a pair of brown, uh, thick corduroys. And I was still cold, and I remember leaning up against uh, the fire and putting my hands behind me and and just trying to warm up. And my last conscious thought before um, seeing the entity was that I was standing too close to the fire, Um, you know, that it was literally dangerous how close to the fire I was standing, and I didn't want to fry my beautiful corduroys. Um, And the whole right side of my body was like a slab of ice. Uh, Mm. But I was able to turn my head, and I heard a, a fork hit a china plate. And I looked up, and my father was staring to my right. He was staring at me but actually looking to my right and had dropped his fork on his plate at the table in the dining room. And the whole rest of my family was sitting there, and all of them were looking into the parlor And he said to me, it looks like someone's come to welcome you home. And Uh I turned my head, which was the only part of my body that I could move. And I looked directly into the face of an apparition of an entity that was dressed in a beautiful leg of mutton dress, full length, you know, with the big puffy sleeves and the pearls down the arm where it narrows. And uh, a high collar with lace and a beautiful bodice and uh, a lovely wide belt. and, um, And I stared into her face, and she was me as an old woman. She was me more how I look now. Um, except she had this massive wad of gray hair that was wound up in a bun on the top of her head. And I looked directly into her eyes and I was looking into the mirror image reflection of myself as an elderly woman from the 1700s.
3: Wow. Well, Corby, what do
6: you think? (laughs) Okay. Um, to me now, see you're talking to a historian, andra, um the way you're describing her, she is late nineteenth century, but that means you've been there twice, and the house feels better when you're there. it just does um, so probably let's see the house was in mid eighteen so mid eighteen probably um you probably died before the whole Bathsheba thing and then came back in um, the mid-1800s. And remember, people aged much faster then. You may right. look 70 and you might have only been 50. So that tells me mm. you have been there twice and third time paid the charm.
1: Well, you know, uh, my sister Cindy saw a little girl who would always walk through her bedroom and she said to me, she looks just like you. And uh, she said that she was about five years old. Well, Cindy wasn't born when I was five years old, but one day she took me to uh, the um, uh, family photo album and she picked out a photograph of me with my long, thick black hair. And she said, that's her, that's her well, that was me when I was five years old. And she said, she looks just like you. So I I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I do know that the day that we moved out of that house and I told my mother what I saw that day, because everybody saw the apparition, but nobody saw her face and on the Hearthstone, And I didn't tell anybody in my family because, well, frankly, it blew my mind. And It was, uh, you know, I was still young and and learning myself. There are no experts in this field. That is the only thing I will argue uh, about. You know, when I get called an expert, I am very quick to, uh, to reiterate that there are no experts in this field. If my family doesn't have all the answers, then absolutely nobody does, as steeped as we were in that environment for a decade. But I am an experiencer. And um, the day that we were moving out of the house, I told my mother that the face of the apparition I saw that day on my birthday weekend coming home from school, my first trip back from school, uh, looked uh, like a mirror image, of reflection of myself. And she just hugged me, and she said, oh, honey, I always knew we bought this house for you. Oh, my. Oh, sweet. Well, you know, no, I would appreciate is. it if somebody would have asked me about it. you know i was I freaked out when my parents called me and told me that they had sold the farm. I was just like a month away, you know preparing for finals in my senior year and my tutorial board, and you know under so much pressure that I should have turned into a friggin diamond and you know, <laughs> and I get a phone call in my in my dorm room, and my father has told me that um, that they have sold the farm to the abutting landowners, and I freaked out. I mean, I couldn't – I said, I you know, I thought this family was a democracy. I thought we made decisions, you know, especially the big ones, together. And, you know, why didn't anybody tell me this? Why didn't anybody – you know, call me and talk to me about this. How is this happening without me even, even knowing about it? And I was crying and, you know, like, Oh my God, I went through, I think I went through a half a box of tissues in one conversation. And I was to the point where my father said, okay, okay, okay. Let me put your mother on the phone. And when he did, she said to me, honey, she said, I told your father, Uh, that I I won't survive another winter in this house, honey. We have to sell the farm. We have to sell the farm. We have to go. And so I suddenly had the scales of justice, you know, metaphorically in my mind Mm -hmm. and weighing, you know, the farm versus my mother's health and well-being. And it was no decision. You know, of course I was going to come down squarely on the side, of what was best for my mother. But to say that I was heartbroken was the uh, understatement of the new millennium. I just was devastated. I thought that, you know, we had gotten through the worst of everything and had kind of made peace with the the spirits and everything had settled down. And uh, at that point, and I just didn't understand You know, the way my mother put it to my father was, you know, if we don't sell this house, I have to leave. In other words, divorce. In other words, separating and breaking up the family. And he was so devastated by the thought of that, that, you know, he put the house on the market where it languished for six months. Nobody came to look at it. Nobody called about it. And and there it was. And he finally went to the abutting landowners in Massachusetts and offered them the property for a song, and they agreed to buy it. Well, my sister Nancy felt exactly the same way that I did, and she was so upset with my parents that she wouldn't speak to them for months. And um, she went to the abutting landowners who – she was their babysitter, um, and she offered – to stay on at the house as the caretaker because their intention was to restore the house, um, to its original, you know, colonial authenticity. And, uh, so she offered to stay and in so doing it literally broke up our family and we never lived under the same roof again when all the rest of the us moved to our new home in Georgia. Nancy stayed behind in Rhode Island. And by the time she moved down to join us in Georgia, none of us lived uh, at the new farm in Georgia anymore. We had all dispersed into, you know, toward more toward Atlanta, uh, where we could, you know, work. And uh, because it was a very remote area where we were living. And so um, it kind of fractured our family, I really guess is the the very best way to put it, but um, it has been uh, it's been a real trial for me because i've I've missed the house it's the only place that has ever felt like home to me um, and i I never had any negative altercations with the spirits. The only time that I remember feel, feeling fearful in the house was when I was witnessing things that were happening to my mother or my sisters um, and could see how distressing it was for them. But nothing untoward ever happened to me in the house. And, in fact, when I went back after writing uh, my initial manuscript, my rough draft, uh, in March of 2010, it was as though the house hugged me because they knew that I had done my very best to um, acknowledge the spirits in the house and to tell our story as well as I could so that they would not live in obscurity so that their story would be told as well as our own. Uh, It was like being uh, immersed into a tub of warm butter. It was the most absolutely remarkable feeling walking into that house and feeling Utterly submerged In liquid love I'll never forget it They knew what that's I so, did And wonderful. they actually helped me
3: That's yep. so wonderful Now again please tell us The name of your books And, and are they still available on Amazon Or somewhere <laughs> so people can purchase oh, them Oh yeah they're
1: available everywhere The the least expensive And fastest way to get them um, Is through Amazon And um They've been uh, on there for years and years. I published the first of the three volumes in 2011, uh, and then 2012 for the second, and 2014 for the third, because in 2013 is when The Conjuring came out. And even though I gave the entire manuscript to everybody working on The Conjuring to read, uh, the first two books were already published. The third was still in script form, but... Uh, you know, it it blew them away. I mean, James Wan, when he read my books, he's like, oh, hell no. Oh, no, we are not. You know, we are not filming in Rhode Island. We are not going to that farm. I'm not going anywhere near there. Uh, you know, he was just so blown away by the actual real story. But, you know, unfortunately even Hollywood executives are fear-based carbon units. And when they got wind of, you know, and I've given, I've gotten, I'd given them the screenwriters permission to, even though the movie was based on the case files of Ed and Lorraine Warren, um, I had given them permission to use elements of the true story from the books. And, um, and every time they tried to, to insert, you know, the truth into that screenplay, uh, the execs made him take it out and redact it and said, you know, what's the point of making a film that's uh, so terrifying that people don't stay to watch it, you know? So it ended, it ended up that, uh, the conjuring, uh, most elements of the conjuring were conjured in the, in the minds of two screenwriters that tried to integrate, um, some elements of the truth and integrate cherry picked basically, uh, our story and then tried to merge it with what they knew from the Warren's case files. But the Warren's only came to our house six times over the course of a year and a half. And we lived there for 10 years. So uh, they left and we never saw them again after August of 2014. Um, I mean, I'm sorry. What am I saying? Oh my God. We didn't see them again after August of 1974. Uh, and then we lived there another six years beyond that. So there were many things that happened in the house that they didn't even know about.
3: Now, Andrew, I have ask you a question, because I know you were the one that actually went out and promoted the film, because from what you were sharing, it sounded like the actors had experienced a number of paranormal events on set, and they were afraid to go out and promote the film. Can you tell us what happened on set?
1: Well, I can tell you what happened on set while we were there. I let them tell their own stories other than the the things that actually occurred that were so extreme that it made the press. Um, you know, the night after we left the site, uh, the set, where we went out to Wilmington, North Carolina, where they filmed it, and we had, uh, and I believe, Patricia, we had talked about this the other day, um, we had... Uh, had an invitation from the producers for all of us to go out. And at the very last minute, my mother changed her mind and said, no, I've decided not to go, which of course, you know, kind of blew my head off because they had a hotel room for her and everything else, you know, and it's like, Oh mom, please. And she said, no, I just feel like I shouldn't go. I should stay home. And it was so weird because the same exact thing happened out in Wilmington, and at the very last minute, the, literally the only person associated with the film that was not on the set that day that we arrived was Lily Taylor, who played my mother. So the two uh-huh. matriarchs um, decided at the very last minute that they were not going to go to the set. And while we were out there, we were doing an interview uh, for, that they had asked us to do, uh, to include in the Blu-ray edition of the film once it went out on DVD. And so we were all set up in, uh, in the front portion of the property uh, at the house they were using to film. And we were, oh gosh, I guess about two-thirds, maybe three-quarters of the way through the interview when all of a sudden this rogue wind came tearing through where we were. And I immediately, I mean, 60, 70-mile-an-hour wind just kind of flew right over us. And the boons and the cameras and the screens and everything went flying. And the tech crew was trying to save their equipment and grab it as fast as they could. And I just looked at my sister Christine, and she looked at me, and we shook our heads because we knew that was a supernatural wind. there wasn't another tree on that five-acre property that was moving at all.
3: And yet that
1: was coming over us. And of course we had our cell phones turned off because we were doing an interview and you know, where they put everything back together again and we continued and finished with the interview and then it was over and we all turned our cell phones back on and we uh, all received a series of panicked messages from my niece that she had discovered my mother laying on the floor had taken a fall uh, about a half an hour earlier. So basically the same time that this event happened on the set and had broken her hip. And my, oh. my niece, Stephanie, um had discovered her and rushed her to the hospital. So, you know, the whole movie set thing was over. I mean, we immediately went back to the hotel and got our stuff together and, and drove all the way back uh, to Atlanta. And when we got into the hospital room, all five of her daughters arrived simultaneously. And when we went into the hospital and into her room, her doctor and her nurse and one of my nieces and a nephew was there um, staying with her. She had just come out of recovery. And she was completely sedated and she sat bolt upright in her bed and she looked at me and she took my hand and she said, I have not felt that presence in more than 40 years. And then she laid back down and went to sleep and did not wake up until the next day. And she doesn't remember that happening, but there were numerous witnesses to her saying that. um, And she felt that she had been, pushed that she had been pushed not that she had fallen naturally that she had been pushed and so it was uh you know it was a a very negative thing that that came out of what was an otherwise very positive experience um and then the night then that night we're already back in Georgia all of us and uh that night, the hotel where all of the uh, cast and crew were staying in, uh, in Wilmington, North Carolina, inexplicably caught on fire. And they were never able to determine what caused the fire. But um, they, at 2 o'clock in the morning, all of them were standing outside in the parking lot watching their hotel burned. Um, And, you know, anybody that's familiar with our story knows that, you know, fire is an integral part of it. Uh, There were several fires at the farm that started in inexplicable ways and that were put out in inexplicable ways. That house should have burned to the ground numerous times. Uh, And it did not. And my mother was threatened with fire. Um, there was an incident where all of the spirits in the house gathered simultaneously, and threatened her. And they were carrying torches that were lit, and that was the horror for her. Was that you know her five children were asleep overhead in a house that was just a tinderbox, and they were carrying torches that were ablaze. And she was, I mean, that was the real terror for her was seeing, you know, the possibility that, uh, you know, she that she and her family was going to burn to death in that house. You know, it it was uh, there were there were many instances, instances and episodes that, um, you know, that boggle the mind. You know, I think I said to Patricia the other day. Uh, if I had not lived that life, if I had not grown up in that house and experienced all that I did and read my own books, I can't tell you that I would actually believe it.
4: <laughs>
3: Andrea, how
4: was your father affected by all this? Because the mentioning how it affected your mother. But there, I don't recall anything specific where the reaction to your father, besides being the protective father, how did it well, affect him?
1: Overall? protective, but also in denial. You know, oh. he he just he. It took him more than 40 years to admit that he was terrified. That he had moved his family into an environment in which he had zero control over it. That there was absolutely nothing that he could do to protect his wife and his five children. Um, And so for the first couple of years, he'll he'll only say it was the first few months. But honestly, you know, that's revisionist history on his part because he was (laughs) – uh, you know, you know, he wants everybody to, yeah, to think. Well, you know, I came around pretty quick, I figured it out pretty quick. I'm, you know, smart and all that. And i like, I, uh, uh, dad, okay, no, dad, you were king of denial for at least a couple of years. Um, and he didn't want anything to do with the Warrens. Um, he, he did not trust them and he did not think that they were there you know, for the right reasons. He thought that they may try to exploit our family, and he just didn't want his wife and his kids talking about spooky stuff. He did not. He didn't believe in it, and he didn't, and, you know, even even when things started happening to him, he couldn't wrap his mind around it, and it took him a while. It was, he evolved, you know. I mean, he finally got to the point where there just was no denying it. There was just no denying it you know but unfortunately he did damage to my my parents relationship by questioning my mother's veracity and she, you know she'd rather swallow her tongue than lie to anybody ever about anything so you know they'd already been married 14 years and had five children together when they moved to the farm and she deeply resented um the you know at a time when she perceived that she needed him most he was mm-hmm. questioning her sanity
4: mm. and yeah, that's hard to take very that much would be hard so. to take yes
1: yeah yes,
4: very much
3: so
1: yeah it you know, was, we're going to take was. a very it, short commercial it, it,
3: break and when we come back um pk was mentioning uh, some very inf- very good information about All of the female energy that was in the house with your five sisters, all of you five girls, and your mother, Mm -hmm. and how that may have impacted your experience. So when we come back, we're going to talk about that, and then we want to hear more about the spookiest things that happened in the Conjuring House. So everybody, stay tuned. We will be right back. You are listening to Supernatural Girls Radio. We are speaking with Andrea Perrin, Patricia Kirkman, and Corby Mittlide. We are going to continue this very exciting conversation in just a few minutes. Stay tuned. We'll be back.
0: Pure essential oil, specialized mineral, and a revolutionary anti-aging technology. Astridium combines the best of all scientifically proven ingredients in easy-to-use creams, lotions, and concentrated serums. Astridian's advanced line of products take your skin to a new level of being healthy and beautiful. We offer a variety of collections that address all your skin concerns. The Essential Anti-Aging Series treats and moisturizes your skin for a long-lasting, younger look. The Multivitamin Series promotes healthy skin with high-quality vitamins and minerals. The Sports Series restores skin from cellular damage and stress. Astridian also offers a revitalizing solution for hair and a professional series for doctors and medical spas. Visit astridian.love today and begin your new journey to healthy, beautiful, youthful skin. Astridian, beyond your expectations.
6: There are a lot of psychics out there. How do you decide which one is right for you? you look for someone who empowers you, who's practical and spiritually connected, who says, here are your opportunities, here are your challenges, and here's a way to deal with them, and then gives you your own toolbox to make your life everything you want it to be. Hi, I'm Corby Mitleid, and that's how I work with you. As a certified professional tarot reader, I've helped thousands of people for over 40 years through my toolbox. Cards, past life retrieval, numerology, spirit guide conferences, and mediumship. Whether it's career, relationships, finances, or your spiritual road, together we can replace your confusion with clarity. And you'll probably find a little laughter along the way. Visit me at corbymitlide.com to find out how to cross your bridge from fear to fearlessness and fly. And tell me you found me at Supernatural Girls for a special gift with your reading. Corby Mitleid. The practical psychic for catching your tomorrows today. Find me at CorbyMitline.com. That's CorbyMitline.com.
2: Your property tax bill. Have you seen it lately? It's frightening. Your property taxes are going up while your home value is going down. It's time to fight back and win. For the real truth about the property tax system, get Attorney Pat Quintilian's book, Are you getting screwed on your property taxes? How to find out and how to fix it? Attorney Quintilian answers all your questions and gives you the facts you need to fight a property tax bill that is spiraling out of control. You'll also read about what happens to property owners who don't check their property records, only to find out too late they're taxed on square footage, fixtures, and even buildings that they don't own. Is this happening to you? Learn your rights buy attorney pat Quintilian's book today are you getting screwed on your property taxes how to find out and how to fix it available on amazon.com are you frustrated
7: with endless mantras affirmations and processes that promise to align your life with your dreams only to find yourself years later in the same space where you began do you feel like you must be doing something wrong because nothing seems to be working Don't you just wish that someone could shift your consciousness for you and your life could align with your desires without all the effort? Well, your wish is about to come true. Hi, I'm Carrie Cannon, and I have a gift that allows me to align the consciousness of others to be in harmony with their dreams. The best part is, it requires no particular effort on your part. Upon listening to a consciousness alignment, people have reported instant energy shifts, financial windfalls, Soulmate connections, healed relationships, physical healings, and more. To gain access to a free trial offer for my entire Manifesting Miracles Library of Consciousness Alignments, go to commandmiracles.com now for details. Again, that's commandmiracles.com for information about our free trial offer. That's commandmiracles.com.
3: Welcome back, everyone, to Supernatural Girls Radio. I'm your host, Patricia Baker, here with my co-host, Patricia Kirkman, PK, and our guest tonight, Andrea Perrin. What a great show this has been. We're going to keep going. We've booked two hours tonight. We'll go all the way to 930. And Corby Midlight is here, tarot reader extraordinaire. And we're having just the best conversation ever with Andrea about her experience in The Conjuring House. And PK, I wanted to bring you into the conversation because you also brought up some great information with your expertise in numerology. And you were talking about all of the female energy in that house. Do you want to start there?
4: Well, that's part of it. it one of the things that I noticed to begin with is that the address of the house is a nine address. It's it's for the house is for others. It's the the high energy of what goes on there. But when the house was purchased was for uh, Andrea's family, it was in an eight-year. But because of the holiday, the mother did not want to move in until after Christmas, so they moved in actually in a nine-year. Nine is dealing with endings of things. So for the, And they lived in the house for a period for the time of purchase to the sale of it was a ten-year period, so actually in the house for a nine-year period of time. And the seventh aspect I kept getting of is because it's about the learning and teaching and things that were supposed to be brought out. But I look back at one of the dates that Andrea was so kind to put out there for us, that the house was completed in seventeen thirty six, which was an eight and it was at a point in time where things were taking place and it was growth. But also that there there was an area that was brought up about Seven soldiers being buried in the walls of the house.
2: Oh, and
4: seven my. deals on spiritual side. Eight put things in order, but nine deals with completions and endings and opening doors to many different things. And I'm sure Corby couldn't go along with that one with me. But I was very impressed with the fact that the mother was the one that was, always seemed to be affected by everything, more so than the girls saw things. But the mother changed her style of dress her vocabulary, et cetera, changed over the years as she was kind of sliding into the period of time when the house was originally built is what I was thinking of. I don't know, Andrea, is that go along with that?
1: Uh, yes, that's actually why Mrs. Warren thought that my mother was oppressed uh, in the house and that there was actually spirit in the house that was having uh, an untow- untoward influence on her. Um, which, you know, was uh, deeply distressing to her um, because she felt like she was literally jumping dimensions. You know, she was um, feeling, and it was, there was a a deep sense of timelessness about the house, uh, which is why I wrote the books the way that I did, uh, even though, you know, the first book starts, chronologically in the last book ends chronologically covering the beginning before we moved into the house. From the minute we step onto that property as the official homeowners Mm -hmm. until the minute that we leave that house in the third volume, uh, the stories are all intermingled according to the type of haunting that it was. There's 10 chapters total in three volumes and each chapter has a series of subchapters. And so for those people who are strictly linear thinkers, it gets a little confusing at first, you know, because not only is there a huge cast of characters, but, you know, one story could be about my sister Cindy when she was eight, and then the very next story could be something that happened to Cindy when she was 14, and a linear thinker will go, whoa, 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 wait a minute, I just lost six years. Well, no, you didn't. Pause and reflect. On what what is the correlation and integration? Why are these stories side by side? How does one pertain to another? Um, and in that process of prying wide open the mind of the reader, um, they all they always say when they write to me at the end of the trilogy that you know when it's done they see the whole timeline unfolding perfectly. But it, it seems like, uh, you know, a, a garbled mess. Like, for instance, in Volume 2, Chapter 7, um, it's, the chapter is called Warren Peace, W-A-R-R-E-N. And right. it's all about the six visits of the Warrens and what they explored and the investigation that they conducted and what went wrong and how it all happened. Um, And so all of that is compressed into a chapter and a series of subchapters involving their involvement with the house. Um, And so it is not specifically chronological uh, in the time that we lived there. But ultimately, what happens is the reader discovers that they feel like they, too, have lived in the house, that they know our family intimately well, that they are uh, a part of the story after they're done reading it um and that's what that's the effect that i wanted to achieve and the other thing that was so important about that particularly from the women readers is that they felt um, very spiritually connected to the house and to the energy of it, Um, and that it gave them, it liberated them to tell their own stories and experiences that they had with spirit, and it, it freed them to be able to share their own experiences with others because they ultimately leave the trilogy feeling like if, If we could bear all, if we could expose the whole truth of our experience at that house in a collective memoir, then they can talk and speak their truth, too. Um, And that, to me, is the ultimate reward for having spent uh, seven years of my life tethered to a keyboard, uh, writing this story. (laughs) I mean, 1,500 pages of you know, opening a vein and just letting it pour out and not just my own stories, but the stories of every member of my family and uh, all the things that happened to us collectively as a family. We had a numerous experiences in the house that were, you know, that happened that we all saw at once. So well, all I've- of that is integrated into the story, but it was, I agree with you, the feminine energy In that house seemed to unleash something that, um, and, and, you know, it's interesting because uh, it's a psychological drama, too, uh, and a a case in point. Uh, There was a spirit in the house that was haunting and taunting my mother, and that was very unkind to her in the extreme, and that was the exact same spirit that was attacking my mother befriended my father. And that was the one that he had the close relationship with. So I thought I always found it very interesting as my parents were fighting and arguing and, you know, literally their marriage was coming apart in that house. The spirit that was had my mother under attack was the one that rather lusted after my father and was very covetous of us, the five children. And the way that we looked at it was that she was, uh, if not the original mistress of the house, certainly one of them, and that she felt a certain threat from my mother, that my mother posed some kind of a, um, like, it was like a power, uh, power struggle. That was going on between the two of them. Um, and yes, my mother did change. My mother ultimately was freed from that, whatever that was. Um, but the reason that she was freed from it was because she suddenly understood and realized that we were living in a multi dimensional portal, cleverly disguised as a farmhouse. And that, you know, there were spirits that she encountered one night where. Uh, two men. um, I can't remember if I told you this story already or if it was in the previous interview that I did. No, I don't think you told us yet. Uh, Yeah, it was, you know, my mother um, was really rather wasting away, you know, because one can't live on coffee and cigarettes alone. And she was very unhappy and she was very distant and withdrawn from us. And this was after the seance that had gone so terribly wrong that it almost cost her her life. The one that my father insisted should not happen. And my mother acquiesced to, um, and that was with the Warrens. And that was in August of 1974. Um, but it was a couple of months later and my mother got up and I was, I had made beef stew for my sisters for dinner that night. And mom came out of her bedroom and stood at the fireplace and, Asked me if there was anything left over from dinner and I told her what I had made and, and she asked me to make a short pot of coffee, which I had to perk. There were no microwaves at the time. I had to walk through the entire length of the house to go get mom some dinner and then warm it up on the stove and perk a pot of coffee in the percolator and... Uh, in the time that I was gone, my mom leaned over into the wood box, grabbed a big log, threw it on the fireplace as the last log of the night. It was about maybe 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. And she was putting, replacing the screen in front of the fireplace, and she heard laughter behind her. And she turned and looked into our dining room, which was just a few moments before shut down for the night. All the lights were off. And she turned around, and the room was fully lit with candles and with oil lamps. And there was a family sitting around a table that was not our own, a hand-hewn oak table with benches. And there was a woman uh, in a full-length dress that was stirring a pot of stew over an open fire. And that fireplace had been sealed for more than 100 years before we bought the house. And she looked and stared into the room, and there were two men. Sitting on one side of the table and they had pewter steins in front of them, which would be indicative of the 1700s since it was outlawed uh, for use with, uh, you know, food um, steins and plates and such uh, because of the lead content in the 1800s. And she stood there and just stared at this family. And the woman was telling her children to take their seats at the table and she was lifting the stew off the rod and bringing it over to the table. And the two men that were sitting there, one of them looked into the parlor and saw my mother standing on the hearthstone in front of the fireplace. And he smiled at her and then he nudged the man beside him and pointed her out to his companion. And she was the ghost. So that's when my mother understood that she was capable of peering into the past at the same time that they were capable of peering into the future. And that's when she understood that we not only were living in a place that was multidimensional in nature, that is when she understood that the universe is multidimensional in nature. And when I came back through that dining room, my mother was glowing. I had not seen her smile in months and months, she was a deeply unhappy person, and she had found her smile, and I came in, and I brought her uh, a bowl of stew and a cup of coffee, and we sat down uh, at the, on the sofa, and I laid everything on the table in front of her, and she told me what she had just seen, and she was joyful because it was the first time that she ever understood what was happening in that house. And it changed everything. It was her personal paradigm shift.
3: That's amazing. You know, Andrea, you bring up so many important issues talking about the house this way. I mean, so many times on this show we've all discussed what happens when people encounter the unknown, especially in their own homes. Do they react with fear or do they react with curiosity? And do they stay grounded? Because if you can stay grounded, I think you make it to that next level that you're talking about. And that next level is all about this understanding, that there is nothing that is supernatural. It's all natural. It's just that we've come to identify it as outside of the norm. And that's really hurt Mm -hmm. our consciousness. It's really limited our consciousness. So it's amazing that you've been able to wrap your mind around all of these events That have occurred, and yet you have come out the other side with an expanded awareness of life. So I have to commend you. I mean, this is just an amazing realization that you came to, that your mother came to, possibly your sisters also, and maybe even your dad tagging along. But it is, um, you know, it's really not about scaring people half to death. I know Hollywood loves to do that, and we find it somehow entertaining but this is just so much more to what happened to you personally, to your family in that house. It went way beyond spooky
4: and scary. Have you been back yeah. to the house, Andrea? Uh,
1: I have been back to the house a multitude of times, and um, and I'm always grateful, and I'm always happy. To be there, and it truly is the only place that feels like home to me. It's the only place that feels permanent to me. Everything else, you know, I live in a beautiful house in a lovely neighborhood on gorgeous Lake Apopka. I live in paradise in Central Florida, uh, about maybe half an hour northwest of Orlando. Uh, a gorgeous neighborhood, a gorgeous town. Uh, And it feels temporary. It feels like, okay, this is fine for now. Um, But the only place that I've ever lived, the only place that I have ever been that has a sense of permanence for me is that farm. Um, And I I don't miss it because I feel like it's a part of me, if that Mm -hmm. makes any sense.
6: You know, yeah, I dream sense.
1: about it all the time. I write about it all the time. I think about it all the time. It's just so much a part of me that I don't even need to close my eyes to visualize. I know every I know every floorboard. I know every bump in the wall. I know every sound it makes. I know the sounds of every latch on every door. I know the sounds of the voices of the spirits that I connected with there. Um, you know, it's just uh, it's a it is a permanent part of me. Um, so in that respect, you know, a lot of people all, you know, ask me during the myriad interviews that I do, you know, do you uh, do you feel um, a sense of um, loss around it? And I can't say that I do Because it really is elemental to who I am. And even though no one in our family much talked about it after we left the farm, uh, it's almost like we all needed decades to process what happened there. And occasionally it would come up in conversation when we were together, but mostly we all moved on with our lives and, you know, started careers and did other things. Um, but we were touched by spirit, each and every one of us. And you all know that once that door is opened, it does not close yeah. again. And eventually right. something will lean on through and kind of tap you or give you a little tug on the back of your hair and say, I'm still here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> so it is. Uh, it is. And your, um, sister,
4: that your sister that stayed on as the caretaker for the house, uh, how did she progress after that?
1: Well, she was so angry for a long time. I mean, a long time uh, about my parents selling the house the way she perceived it out from under us um, that she wouldn't discuss it with either of my parents because, uh, you know, we were raised always to be respectful, even of the spirits. You know, my mother, once she realized that they weren't just passing through, that they were all attached to that property. Uh, You know, her attitude about it was, look, we have to be respectful no matter what happens in this house because we're the intruders, and this was their house first. And so we were really raised with that um, understanding that, you know, yes, this was happening, and, yeah, there might be some things that happen that might be frightening or even terrifying, uh, especially to my sister Cindy, my sister Cindy really suffered in that house. And you know, she she uh, a few years ago she was listening to uh, an interview that I was giving, and she uh, called me up when it was done, and she said, "You need to to clarify when you say that it was the happiest ten years of your life that that was not true for every member of your family." She said. I wish that we had never lived at the farm. I wish that none of that had ever happened. I would be perfectly blissful not knowing about any of that. And, you know, and I understand her mm-hmm. her feelings about that. Cindy really struggled in that house, um, as my mother really struggled, and yet they have juxtaposed opinions about it. You know, when I talk to my mom about it, she says, You know, it was the most informative decade of my life. I learned everything that I needed to know about life and death and the afterlife living at that farm. And I have absolutely no fear of death because of it. So I think it's interesting that the seven of us all had very unique experiences there, Mm -hmm. even processing things that happened to us together. Um, We still processed it as individuals. Um, and had our own take on things. And, you know, I'm, I'm prone to repeating because it's the truth of, of my story and my perception of it. I often say, you know, that I have seen the dark side of existence. I have witnessed uh, the behavior of pure, unadulterated evil. And because of that, I choose to live in the light. I, you know, I do not... Um, I I do not dwell in darkness. I feel that I've had 40-plus years to wrap my mind around all of this, but I will tell you something that um, was particularly striking that I wrote about in the third and final volume of the trilogy, and that is that the day that we were leaving, uh, you know, we were all so upset that Nancy was not coming with us. Um, Cindy, my sister Cindy and a family friend, had gone down to the new farm in Georgia a couple of weeks before the rest of the family went, and um, so they came out for my mom and dad and my sister Christine came out for my college graduation, but the but Cindy and our friend Harry uh, brought the horses down to the new farm and got the house ready to receive the rest of us. And meanwhile, I graduated from college in Pittsburgh. We drove back to. Rhode Island and we were there for about 10 days packing up the rest of our belongings and loading the truck and then went caravan style uh, to Georgia. But we left Nancy behind. And as we were waving goodbye, we had already done our hugs and our kisses and she was standing on the front porch. And, you know, we leaned to wave, you know, one more time before we left. And there was a full-body apparition of a woman standing right behind her uh, that we could see through the windows into the dining room. And I said, you know, Mom, do you see it? And she's like, yeah. She's like, just drive, just drive. And (laughs) as we pulled out of the yard, she said, I will never return to this place again as long as I live. And she's almost 81 years old, and she has remained true to her word. All these decades later, she has never gone back to the farm, whereas uh, my sister, Cindy, will now never go back to the farm after a, an encounter that she had there just this past year doing a filming of an episode of Kindred Spirits with my friends, Chip Coffee and Adam uh, Barry and Amy Bruni and had a very close encounter. And she's like, that's it. I'm done. I'm never coming back here again. That's it. Uh, She, she had, she got very sick. She was um, uh, very upset. They were all talking to her at once uh, telling her they wanted her to go into the cellar and she was refusing. They wanted her to go into the library that was my parents' old bedroom. She kept refusing and and when she left, she had a bruise on her that was the size of a softball that was green and black and blue and looked like it was to the bone. And the next day it was gone. Um, you know, so she took a punch for being disobedient. Um, and she said, that's it. I'm done. I'm, I'm not ever going back. But, you know, we left that house in June of 1980, and we drove for two days to get to Georgia. And with all of our critters, except the horses that had already gone down in advance, and um, when we pulled into the yard of the farm in Georgia at 6 o'clock in the morning, um, it, it had a big, sprawling, open driveway, and we pulled in, and my sister Cindy was standing in the front window, with a cup of coffee in her hands and the exact same apparition that had been standing behind my sister Nancy when we left the farm was now standing behind my sister Cindy. And my mother gasped and she said, this isn't over. This will
4: never be over. Oh, God, I love her. That
3: had to be terrifying for her. Yeah. But she's doing okay now, your mom, right?
1: She is. She is. Um, Well, whatever offending spirit caused my mother to fall while we were doing our interview on the set in Wilmington for The Conjuring, I confronted when we got home. And I said, you know, I went out on the night of a supermoon. It was 2012. And interestingly, we have our last supermoon of the year tonight. The flower moon is a supermoon. It is. Um, And it's gorgeous. I just went out and checked it out on the commercial break. Um, And uh, she, um, you know, I went outside and I said, you know, if anybody out there has got an issue about this movie and this movie being made and, you know, anybody has a problem, please take it up with me and don't ever touch my mother again. My mother is to be nothing but protected by you. You need to love my mother as much as I do, and this must end and it can never happen again and it never has. And in okay. fact, we had an incident at at my mother's home in Georgia um recently where my niece uh went and she called my sister Chris and my sister Christine and my mother lived together. And uh, and an adorable little farm just, you know, about 40 uh, minutes west of Atlanta out in horse and cow country, which is great having more of them than people around you. It's really awesome. And and there was an incident where my niece called and Christine had taken my mom to a doctor's appointment and uh my niece called and she's like uh our water heater's not working can I go down to your house and use your shower and so uh she took her son and they and went down and he was in the shower and she was standing in the kitchen and she felt a presence behind her and she turned around and this apparition rushed at her i mean it's Scared the wits out of her. She's 30 years old. She had never had an experience in her life. She knew about her mother's experiences. She'd read the books. She'd listened to all the family stories. She knew that, you know, we came from a rather unique and uh, uh, past and environment, Um, but she had never seen anything like it in her life. And this entity rushed, it was a woman. Um, and she had a big wad of gray hair on the top of her head. And she just rushed at my niece as though she was passing right through oh. her. And my that poor girl just about had a stroke. I mean, she oh, was God. so upset. And, <laughs> uh, and, you know, she and Christine called me when she got home and my niece told her everything that had happened, our niece, and she was uh, beside herself. She couldn't stop crying. She couldn't, she couldn't articulate anything. She was trembling from head to toe. She was completely overwhelmed, absolutely, utterly distraught. Um, and, you know, Cindy had rushed down to the house, you know, to try to mitigate what was going on, um, you know, and then try to explain to her that that was one of the spirits that had been told to protect my mother, and the way that the spirit perceived it, there was an intruder in my mother's house. You know, there's never a time that mm-hmm. you know my mom and Christine aren't in that house, one of the two of them, if not both. And suddenly, here comes someone else bringing a kid into the house, using the shower, and you know, making coffee in the coffee pot, and that was, that was. you know, there were oh. some mitigating protective measures going on. And, That's I mean, right. it took us a while to talk her down off that ledge, I've got to tell you. I mean, three, <laughs> four months later oh. after it happened, she had to come and visit with me when I, I went up for a visit and stayed for the holidays after I came off my book tour, uh, at the uh, the end of the fall, and then it's, you know, I always devote from the middle of November right through the next new year to family matters. I know I don't, I come off the road, I'm not doing any anything, interviews, signings, paracons, traveling, I'm done. And that time is my family time. And so she got wind of me coming up and as soon as I got there, you know, I was exhausted. It was a seven-hour drive and she shows up at the door and she's like, I have to talk to you, Auntie Annie. I have to talk to you right now. And I'm like, I know, sweetheart. I know what you need to talk about. She's like, no, I don't think you do. I need to tell you exactly what happened. And I said, well... You know, everybody else, your mother has already told me exactly what happened, and your Aunt Christie has already (laughs) told me, and your granny has already told me. She's like, no, you need to hear it from me, and you need to explain what the blank happened to me that day. She she didn't use the word blank. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, Andrew,
3: we've got about a half an hour left, and there's so much more to cover, and I want to invite Corby back in, PK, continued the conversation. One of the things that we were all talking about before you uh, came on the air tonight with us is about that uh, New Hampshire River that ran underneath the house and also the dug well in the basement. I mean, that seems to be a very important piece of information as to why things happen the way they do because water is such a great conductor. And anytime there's anything supernatural going on, it seems to be, that water plays a very important role. So did you notice more events happening from the basement, from where that well was? Did they seem to emanate from there?
1: Yeah, the cellar was uh, an integral part of what happened in the house, and numerous events occurred in the cellar. Um, You could stand on the corner, of the well room and literally feel feel the ground vibrating beneath your feet. Uh we could lay on the rocks, the big huge slabs of granite that the um our backyard was 6 acres and it was all enclosed. You know, we had 200 acres, but just the yard proper was closed in um by stone walls that had been built by indentured servants. And, I mean, this house, this property was deeded in 1680. The house as it stands now was completed in 1736, and it started as just two rooms and then was built onto over the course of the decades as the family expanded and um, became what it is now. Um, But you could literally lay on those rocks on that stone wall and feel the vibration of the earth. Uh, from the river rushing underneath it, um, and we drilled a well there and hit what uh, the Geological Survey and the Health Department in Rhode Island and uh, you know numerous other agencies uh, told my parents uh, that they had tapped into the lost river of New Hampshire which was buried during the last ice age. And all of them that wrote a report about it said that it is literally the purest water on earth. Um, it, when, they hit, when they struck the river, it blew the equipment apart. The drilling equipment was destroyed. It was a My geyser. God. It came out. Um, I mean, it was an explosion on the property, uh, everybody came running. And the, the well digger was devastated because it literally blew his equipment apart. Uh, there was no way to even measure the pressure on it. And um, even though they were finally able to bring in other equipment and tap the geyser, it still runs from beneath the tap of the geyser. There's like a pond around the well cap. Um, and you can just go and dip your hand in. It's so cold, it hurts your skin. Um, but you can just like literally cup it in your hands and drink directly from the, like the center of the earth. It is absolutely amazing. I have never tasted anything so pure and wondrous in my life. I mean, all other water just tastes like garbage to me after growing up drinking that water. <laughs> um, but, uh, it really, it does. It's like, Oh God, I can taste something in this, you know, what is that chlorine? What is that? What is this? You know, <laughs> I mean, right. even a pure filter doesn't even touch it. Um, you know, but, uh, it was, uh, yeah, it, the, the, there was a, a vibration to the property. There was a vibration that, uh, occurred. And, and I think that, uh, You know, there's, I think that there is some truth. And like I said, there are no experts in this field, but there are knowledgeable people who have done really significant research about this. And it seems to be that where there are places where there's a great deal of quote unquote supernatural activity, there's also a great deal of water. And it seems to be a conductor, uh, almost like that's a way for them to easily travel. Or, you know, that it is literally elemental to the earth and um, after death we become more elemental. In fact, uh, I'm sure of, of your group there, somebody has studied or photographed elementals, uh, yeah. which are an interesting phenomenon in the paranormal. Uh, I have photographs of faces in the woods, uh, I mean, like faces that cover... Huge trees, faces that are, uh, you know, like twenty feet wide and thirty feet tall in the trees of the of the back of that property. And it's like, you know, how did the camera do that? How did that happen? What is that? You know, and what it is is what it is is we know nothing compared to what there is to know. That's what that is.
3: It is really true, what you're saying. And the other thing that we were all talking about that we wanted to share with you, Andrea, is about the earthquake that happened in 1638. Apparently there were a number of earthquakes in the 1500s leading up to that one. But part of our thought process, and, and Corby and PK helped me out here, is that the earthquake disturbed the plates in such a way that it actually made it more of a highway on that property for easy in, easy out, for anything that wanted to come and pay a visit.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I wasn't actually there at the time to my knowledge, but um, I think that um, the earth is a living being and that everything is interconnected and everything is integral to everything else and everything is one thing, which is energy. And so you know as well as I do that there are very few energetic shifts that are more profound than an earthquake. Um, So I wouldn't, let me just say that I would not be surprised if that had something to do with it. But at that time uh, you know, the colonists were just arriving uh, not long after the mass Bay colony was founded. And um, you know, it was uh, right around the time that Roger Williams had been expelled from the Massachusetts Bay colony and had come down into the area that would become the colony of Rhode Island. And that piece of property was deeded in 1680 and it was uh, actually originally thousands of acres and was meant, deeded to the Richardson family that later, it later through marriage became the Arnold estate. But the Richardson family are actually the ones that built that house and another house on the property uh, set way back on the other side of the Nipmuc River. But prior to that, that was Nipmuc tribe, uh, t- uh, tribal community in the valley. Um, and the land was beaded uh, from Roger Williams to the families that followed him down from the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And that particular farm actually created the far northwest corner of what became Rhode Island. So its, its boundary originally was the colony of Connecticut to the west and the Mass Bay Colony to the north. Um, So it was actually a very, very expansive piece of property originally, and in fact, the original Richardson and Arnold Cemetery on the property is more than two miles away from the house, but that was actually on their property at that time.
3: Amazing. Just amazing. I mean, all of the history that you've learned about this and... I know, Corby, you were looking into that as well. And I want to invite you, Corby, and you, P.K., to also share any other insights that you've learned from your own expertise. Uh, P.K., obviously, you with Numerology, and Corby, you with Past Life and Tarot. About Andrea's family, the house, go ahead. And let's take the the last 20 minutes that we have together and share that information.
6: One of the things that I noticed when we were talking about um, – the vast amount of female energy in there. Um, Earlier today, Patricia and I were talking about, I felt that so much female energy, if you're talking about elementals, water is very much female energy. It's the ebb and the flow. And so um, whatever the big nasty was at underneath the land and might have gotten waken up, woken up by the earthquake um, <clears throat> it's as if you made the well and the water there more potent for the multi-dimensional the vortex etc if that had been a house full of men boy would it have been a different different experience I agree um, so that's, yeah. that's where that is for me um you know, I'll tell you, part of me thinks no man should ever be the head of the household in that house again. It has to be a matriarchal domicile.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes- and that house changes men. That house absolutely changes men. It makes men aggressive. Ooh, and I don't know what good. it is. You know, uh, my father changed living in that house.
6: When that house is so matriarchal, the energy is so matriarchal, men have to fight not to drown in it. Men are so used to, we live in a patriarchal society, we run things, not in that house. It's like patriarchal tribes.
1: Yep. Yep, it was. And and we were like our own little tribe, the seven of us. But dad was literally the odd man out. You know, not only was he claiming not to have experienced anything in the house, he was also claiming that he didn't believe it. So he was basically abandoning his wife and his five daughters. Um, And, you know, not just because he had his own business where he had to travel uh, a lot. The movie, The Conjuring, made it look like he was a truck driver. He was actually a businessman um, who was in the jewelry business, and he had accounts all the way from Quebec City to Florida to Ohio. And so when he took off to service his accounts, he was gone anywhere from a week to 10 days, sometimes two weeks at a time um, out, out on the road. And so it was just mom and us, And the energy there, it was, it was strange. It's like when dad came home, everything shut down. When dad came home, it was, uh, the whole dynamic changed. The whole energy in the house changed. Uh, And we went from being happy-go-lucky and joyful and eating whatever the hell we wanted to eat for dinner, even if it was soup and sandwiches, and going fishing down by the lake and hanging out with mom and, you know, playing in the yard and doing all these things. It It was a happier home when he wasn't there. And when he got there... He arrived usually absolutely exhausted at his wits end um, and just wanted to be left alone uh, after he greeted everybody. It was just like, you know, give him some time to just chill. And if anything was disturbing around him, he would have an overtly grumpy Um, Reaction to it So we learned to tiptoe Around it and I think uh, That you know we all suffered uh, Feelings of abandonment um, That you know he was Gone and that even when he was there He didn't believe us I mean if he didn't believe My mother he certainly wasn't Going to believe us so we learned At a very early age that we Could not share our experiences With him because we faced being Chastised um, and, and, you know, just disavowed. Um, and so we didn't, so we learned quickly to, you know, to keep our mouths shut. And, uh, the only time that we ever shared any experiences were between each other. My sisters would come to me with things that had happened to them. And then finally, about six months into living there, Um, I went to my mother and I was like, you know, I said, mom, you know, the girls are coming to me with stories and things and things have been happening in the house and we need to talk. I need to tell you what's going on here. Then meanwhile, she's been having her own experiences, which she's obviously not sharing with her five little girls, not wanting to scare us. And so um, the first night that we all gathered together was in June of 1971. Uh, And I remember that distinctly because it was a very warm, balmy night and we had just gotten out of school for the school year. So it was late and we were up. And after I went to my mother and told her that I needed to talk to her about what was happening, she told me to go get my sisters, except for April. April was still only six years old and she was just too young and she didn't want to discuss it with her. And April was the only one that had not told me personally about any experiences that she was having she was in fact interacting with a very young boy but she was keeping that all to herself and keeping him to herself uh, and not sharing that with the rest of us but we didn't find that out for you know until later um but uh, i went and got nancy christine and cindy and brought them down into the kitchen and they spilled their guts. And told her everything that was happening. And my mother said, that's it. We're selling this house. We're leaving. Mm-hmm. We're out of here. And when my father came back, uh, the same argument that they had had about the house in Cumberland was now the argument that they were having about the house in Harrisville. And it was right in the middle. I don't know if all of you are old enough to remember the early 70s, but, oh, yeah. uh, you know, there was <laughs> there the, house, oh, yeah, the yeah, housing market. Yeah, the housing market was crashing. Uh, The oil cartel was founded in the Middle East. The price of oil had gone through the roof. The cost of living, there was a gas shortage. You You couldn't gas your car up except every other day based on the last number on your license plate. I mean, it was insanity. That house was losing value by the day. There was no way that my parents, without financially bankrupting our family, could have sold that house and gotten out from underneath it. And so that became a point of contention and an argument between my parents. And even though they stayed together for the entire duration of the time that we lived at the farm, uh, two years later after we left, um, when things continued to happen at the house in Georgia – um, my mother felt so alienated from my father that she finally filed for divorce, and it completely fractured our family. It was horrible.
3: What a shame. Oh, my goodness. Well, so much pressure was-, was building, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, for a, a decade, more than a decade.
4: That he couldn't let loose, I think. Am I correct?
1: Mm-hmm. Anger and rage. Mm-hmm. Yep.
4: Absolutely. Not only did he yep. feel outnumbered, but he felt useless in compared to your mother's strength. Because even though she was ill, she had more strength to handle things that he
1: could. Well, you know, it took him more than forty years to admit in tears that he was terrified that he had moved his family into an environment in which he had zero control. Zero.
3: Yeah, especially for a man in that generation, that would have been very difficult. Mm -hmm. But let me ask you another question, Andrea, about the events in the house, because we know that the Conjuring movie really did their own thing with the story. But was there anything that happened that was life-threatening, aside from the thing with your mother and the seance that went wrong? Was there anything else where... Um, Your sisters or you were uh, threatened in a major way, or was it more just scaring you guys?
1: No, uh, there were uh, several incidents that were absolutely life-threatening involving being locked into uh, coffin-like boxes. Uh, Our wood box, Cindy got stuck inside the wood box playing uh, hide-and-seek. Um, and uh, and this box did not have a latch on it. Uh, the lid just flipped open like the cover of a book would, would lift up, um, and she went out into the woodshed and hid in the box uh, while the girls were playing hide-and-seek, and she almost suffocated because she couldn't get out of the box. She said it was like the weight of the world was up on top of the lid, and she could not get out of the box. Um, and um, my sister's, uh, she and Nancy are very uh, connected, um, telepathically connected. And Nancy is the one that found her um, and could hear her screaming in her mind. And Cindy was, um, Cindy was almost gone when she was discovered. And then the same thing happened to Christine when she was eleven. Um, And she swears that she was lifted up, she was laying on my mother's bed, uh, and she was lifted up, and she couldn't open her eyes, Uh, she couldn't move, but she was carried and placed down in an antique trunk that was in my mother's bedroom. And that also did not have a latch or a lock, but she could not get out of it. And she pounded and pounded when she woke up and she was in pitch blackness and covered, you know, uh, you know, by four walls and could not move and could not get out. And she just pounded and screamed and pounded and screamed and no one heard her. And she almost suffocated before um, our uh, friend Kathy found her. Um, It was uh, very frightening and absolutely traumatic. Um, We still, to this day, cannot, Christine cannot reconcile what happened um, that day. And we can't really even discuss it with her because she's, you know, almost 60 years old and she will immediately dissolve into tears and we'll still just sit there with this vacant, inexplicable look on her face and say, "I don't understand, I don't understand, I don't understand you know, oh, and she thought that my fighting. mother had picked her, yeah, she thought that my mother had come and picked her up and put her inside, you know, but we called that in our family that was known as the antique trunk, and the the spirit that came to her said, Christine, go to the box, go in the box, get in the box, go to the box, get in the box. And when she did not move, she was lifted and transported and placed inside it and the lid was closed. And so it was like being trapped in a coffin. And when Mm -hmm. she did open her eyes and was running out of air and could not breathe and was completely saturated in perspiration and gasping for breath. Um, it was just by the grace of God that Kathy finally discovered her when we noticed that she was missing. Thank goodness. So yes, that there were life and or? yeah, there were yes, there were uh, life threatening events that happened in that house. Yes.
3: Yes. Oh my goodness. And now, what, you had this experience with Lorraine and Ed Warren, <laughs> and uh, you wrote about it in the book. What did you think about Lorraine's ability to tune in to the spirits in your house? Were you impressed by it? Did you agree with her rendition of what she thought was happening?
1: Well, I was, you know, I was a kid and um she didn't really have much to do with us the children. Uh it was her husband Ed that interviewed us and that, uh, you know, made copious notes about what we told him, about experiences. And we'd only lived in the house a couple of years when they came on the scene. My mother never sought them out. Um, They were actually uh, told about our predicament by a group of young paranormal investigators from Rhode Island College, uh, headed by Keith Johnson and his twin brother. Um, And their group showed up inexplicably on our property. And Keith said that my mother had called him Um, And my mother said, you know, I never called anybody, actually. I don't know why you're here. Um, And uh, but she was, you know, kind to him and let him in the house and and spoke with him and let him look around the house. And he had some very intense experiences while he was there. And he's the one that sought out Ed and Lorraine Warren and told them about our predicament. And then they came um, on the evening before Halloween in 1973. Um, so, you know, we'd only lived there a couple of years when they got there. and But most of the really intense things that happened in the house had occurred. And, you know, Lorraine Warren is the one that walked in the house, identified herself to my mother. My mom thought it was just a nice middle-aged couple that was lost in the woods. It was a cold night, and she let them in the house to warm up. And Lorraine walked over to our old black stove in the kitchen and put her hand on the corner of it and covered her eyes and said, I sense a malignant presence in this house. Her name is Bathsheba. And there's no way that she could have known anything about Bathsheba Sherman's connection to that house. And even though Bathsheba was not an Arnold and she never lived in the home, uh, there was an incident that apparently occurred back in um, the 1830s, Um, Bathsheba was born in 1812, and she died in 1885, and she was married to Judson Sherman, who lived at the adjacent farm, and that's all there was back then were just a few farms in the area, and, um, you know, everybody knew each other, and everybody had been to each other's homes, I presume, and so uh, there was apparently uh, a story that circulated Um, for uh, hundreds of years that Bathsheba had claimed the life life of an infant uh, in that house and had inserted a needle into the base of its skull and the infant died of convulsions. And after its body was examined, uh, that needle was found protruding out of the the skull and uh, there was an inquest to uh, determine how that baby had died in her care. And there, you know, the town was not even incorporated. It was just a smattering of villages at the time. So there was an inquest in the town of Chepachet, Rhode Island. And my mother found just a very small article about it up in archives, up in Massachusetts, um, somewhere near Clark University. Um, Mm -hmm. And that was the only thing she ever found about it. But... uh, apparently, you know, she said she talked her way out of it if she had anything to do with it. I'm her great defender because, you know, not only, you know, to her credit, Mrs. Warren identified uh, the name of a woman that was associated with the farm. I just found out four months ago that her husband died on that property. I mean, all these years and all the research and all the everything that's been, you know, looked into and compiled and, You know, a a friend of mine who's a historian found the record uh, of his death on that property, not on his own, um, Judson Sherman. So maybe that's her attachment to the property. But, you know, uh, even though she was, uh, you know, let off the hook by the judge at the inquest, uh, there was no DNA evidence at the time. That didn't exist. It was her word. And he took her word and – And so she went on with her life. Uh, We don't know whose baby it was. We don't know if it was her baby or if it was someone else's, one of the Arnold children. We don't know. But, you know, that hung over her head for her whole life, and in the court of public opinion, she was tried and convicted, and, you know, all the the rumors were swirling about her being a practicing witch and having sold, you know, her soul to the devil and, you know, making this sacrifice uh, for eternal youth and beauty. Apparently, she was a ravishingly beautiful woman, and the other women were threatened by her, and the men found her you know, inordinately attractive. And, you know, there were all kinds of things that swirled around that. And the reason that we know about that is because when we moved in, um, Mr. McKeachern, who was an abutting landowner off of Sherman Farm Road, um, from what was the original farm, he was in his 90s. And he's the one that told my mother about Bathsheba Sherman. So it was very odd that that Mrs. Warren, not knowing any of the history of the area, would walk right. into the house right. and identify Bathsheba. But then she blamed everything on that spirit as though she was the offending spirit. And I can pretty much guarantee you she is not the one that was attacking my mother. Uh, the one that was attacking my mother um, clearly, visibly had a broken neck. Her head was hanging off the side of a high-laced neck collar dress and it looked like a desiccated hornet's nest with wild sprigs of hair and two hollow vacant eyes and two holes for her nostrils and thin um, lips and jagged yellow teeth and she was absolutely hideous and she would approach my mother in bed and hang over her as uh, though she was leaning in to kiss her. I yeah, and, and that's, uh, I mean, freaked my mother completely oh, out, absolutely freaked her out.
0: Fight.
3: You know, but one of the things that, that has happened, as you well know, to women over the years, whether it was in Salem or anywhere, women who uh, were too pretty, too smart, or owned land, and had um, had means, were often called witches, or accused yeah. of some type of occult involvement. You know, it probably wasn't even true, so we don't even know was Bathsheba around because she wanted to be vindicated that she really wasn't guilty that whatever happened was either an accident or something else had somebody else was involved so there's so many unanswered questions in that as to why Bathsheba would be even in the the area of that house so, but it is interesting that Lorraine picked up on the name. You know, Andrew, we could just talk to you all night. You are so fascinating, and you have such a <laughs> command of everything that's happened. And gosh, uh, I know we really appreciate all of your time that you've spent with us this evening. And I don't know any last words. You've only got about a minute and a few seconds left from you guys, PK and, and Corby, for Andrea.
1: Oh, thank you all for inviting me on. It's been absolutely fascinating. I'm sorry I dominated the conversation. No, I just we wanted love to get it. as much information well, no, to that you to as possible. You're Wonderful. Um, but, you know, I mean, people who are, are interested and fascinated and want to see the inside of this remarkable house, a place that I often describe as a portal cleverly disguised as a farmhouse, will have that, that opportunity. During this week long event and even though we're doing it virtually and we're all coming from the safety and security of our own homes and hopping in on screen, you'll be able in the background to literally watch whatever is going on in that house from approximately 12 different perspectives. Uh, where all the cameras are set up. And so I think it'll be fascinating to see if any of the energy of the people that come on to lecture during this uh, virtual Paracon actually stir energy up in the house, or if I do when I'm on, um, I think it'll be fascinating. It's it's a grand experiment.
3: Yes. It is a grand
1: experiment.
3: Remember what Renee said, the prices are going up tonight at midnight, so... Make sure you get your tickets before that. Save a little money. It's very reasonable, and we hope that you will be joining us for this mad adventure. It's going to be great. Andrea, thank you so much. I know we're going to have you back to talk about UFOs next. So, in the meantime, oh, yes, everybody. ma'am,
1: yes, you will. That's oh, my true heard passion heard. Love it. in life. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank no. you,
3: Corby. Thank you, PK. Thank you, Andrea. Everybody, I'll be on five to six Eastern Time on Monday, the 11th. I'll be, I'll be joining right the in House and Andrea. So, anyways, everybody. Until then, we'll see you on the Blue Highway. Good night.
0: Good, Good night. night. Good night. Night. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another radio adventure with
2: Supernatural.